Hello and welcome to Habemus Papam, episode 91, St. Zachary. Dear brothers and sisters, Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Habemus Papam. Okay, guys, let's get right back to the story because we left on a cliffhanger last week. It was in the middle of a very tense standoff with the Lombards. There was the Lombard king. There was this Lombard duke. They were fighting. They were betraying people. And then all of a sudden, at that moment, the Pope died, St. Gregory III. And he was succeeded by St. Zachary, which from his name and from the Liber Pontificalis, we know was a Greek-speaking Catholic born in Italy but he was the son of exiles from the East. And he seems like his predecessor to have been a really scholarly guy. He's actually attributed with translating the dialogues of St. Gregory the Great from Latin into Greek, and he also seemed to have a sizable liturgical library. But we don't know too much about his position in the church before he was elected pope, but there seems to be a deacon Zachary who was present in the synods that we talked about last week. Now, regardless of all this, in December of 741, St. Zachary was elected to succeed St. Gregory III. Now, no approval for his election was sought, either from the Byzantine emperor in Constantinople or the Byzantine exarch in Ravenna. And this marks kind of the completion of a turn in papal history. Because up to this point, with a couple exceptions, they always had to seek approval from some Byzantine authority, even if that approval was really just a rubber stamp. And we've kind of been gradually getting to this point where now the East really doesn't matter that much in papal elections, in papal politics. And the West will start to play a much more prominent role. Now, if you remember, at this very moment, the Lombard king Liputrand was about to march an army against Rome because Rome had sided with his rival, Transamund, who was the Duke of Spoleto, which is an area just south of Rome. But that same duke, once he got back into power betrayed the Romans. And so Zachary sent messengers to Liputron saying, hey, this guy just backstabbed us. We'll, we'll help you out, you know, if, if this is what you need to do to, to keep peace in exchange for you returning the territory that you stole from Rome. And that was where the towns of Emilia, Orte, Bomarzo, and Blera. So an agreement was reached and a combined force of Rome and Lombardy troops marched on Spoleto in 742 and they won. And Duke Transamund was forced to abdicate and enter a monastery. And the Pope thought, well, this is great. I kept my end of the bargain and now we'll get the territory back that the Lombards had taken and had promised. But of course, that didn't happen. Liputron still held on to them. He was a very power-hungry, territory-hungry guy. And despite his agreement, he thought, you know what? The Pope's not going to be able to do anything about this. So what does St. Zachary do? He decided to take this up with the Lombard king in person. So St. Zachary headed north with a large retinue of clergy from Rome, and he met the Lombard forces in the town of Narnia. And yes, that's where the C.S. Lewis books get their name from. And they escorted him to Liputran's camp in the town of Terni. And there they spent several weeks negotiating, and they finally hashed out a peace agreement. So Liputrand indeed returned a lot of Roman territory, the four towns that he'd been taken, along with several others, including Narnia. And he also agreed to a 20-year peace deal. 
Now, this is incredibly generous for a guy who has been very conniving, very power-hungry, who hasn't been one to make agreements. And it seems like he was personally quite taken by the appeal from the Pope himself. St. Zachary was persuasive, he was holy, he was congenial. He really knew how to get things from Liputran for whatever reason. And that personal zeal and holiness and, and negotiating ability really made its mark. Now we have to pause a moment because when scholars talk about this, they mention that another transition has taken place with St. Zachary. Although it's one of these things where in history we can't draw the exact line of where this started and this ended, but we've been getting to it for a while. In the past, there was always a distinction, of course, between Roman religious and civil authority. In the time of the emperors, the, the, the civil authority was contrary to the religious authority. But as the Roman Empire collapsed, and then as later Byzantine authority in Italy waxed and waned, this distinction between the religious and the civil was sometimes really evident, but in other times it was basically nominal. For example, St. Gregory the Great had to take upon himself a lot of the civil function of the government, paying the troops and feeding the poor where the government used to do, because no one else would. And the whole place was falling apart. Things were collapsing around him. People were invading, and the, there was no help that you could get from the Byzantines. And this happened with a lot of popes to various degrees. And so St. Zachary's activities show that really the transition is complete. There's no longer a real Byzantine authority, no longer a real civil authority other than the Pope. And the Pope returned from Terni from his negotiating triumph, and he led a magnificent procession through Rome to the Pantheon, where he celebrated Mass in thanksgiving for the peace with the Lombards. But there were still other conflicts going on, the most pressing of which was the iconoclasm controversy that we heard about last week, Leo III, the emperor who had started the promotion of iconoclasm, which if you remember is the destruction of images of Jesus and the saints, he died shortly after the election of Pope Zachary. And Zachary, as was custom, immediately upon his election, sent to the east a profession of his faith. And he also sent a document challenging the emperor to return to the practice of the Orthodox faith and renounce iconoclasm. Now, despite this rather provocative act, St. Zachary and the Byzantine emperors who ruled during his pontificate got along pretty well. The Byzantines were still fiercely iconoclastic, but they just had too much going on in the east with various Islamic invasions to worry about the west. And they recognized that the pope really was the power in Italy, and so they just didn't want to mess with him. And so we have a relative peace with the Byzantines throughout Pope St. Zachary's pontificate. But even though there was peace with the Lombards, and peace with the Byzantines, the Lombards were still causing trouble. In 743, Liputran launched an attack against Ravenna, and that was technically under the control of the Byzantine Exarch, but, I mean, really, he didn't have too much power. But because it was under control of the Byzantines and not the Pope, it wasn't technically subject to the peace deal made with the Pope. So the Pope sent envoys to Liputran to try and get him to stop, but of course he's not going to listen to them. So then... Pope Zachary got together a group of clerics and he started to travel to Ravenna. And the exarch met him on the way and begged on his knees, please come save the city. And so the Pope again sent messengers to Liputran to get him to stop attacking. But this time his messengers got so scared of the Lombards and what they might do to them that they refused to go in person and they sent a letter instead. So Pope Zachary, knowing that 
if you want to get something done right, you have to do it, do it yourself, decided that he would have to go and talk to Lipotrant in person again. And so he again entered Lombard territory, and he arrived on the Feast of Saints Peter and Paul, June 29th, and he again met with King Lipotrant. And the king was reticent to give in to St. Zachary's demands, but after some negotiating, he did, and he gave up the attack on Ravenna. And he personally escorted St. Zachary back home to the borders of papal territory, and again, there was peace. But in January of 744, Liputran died. His successor was quickly deposed, and a new Lombard king, a man named Rachis, took over. And he broke the peace agreement right away, basically. They had been signed with Rome, and he captured the Umbrian town of Perugia. And so once again, St. Zachary sets out to try and make peace. And after paying some tribute and negotiating, Rachis signed a peace agreement himself. And not only that, soon afterwards, he abdicated the Lombard throne, and he entered the Benedictine Monastery of Monte Cassino. So the Pope really seems to have made an impression on this guy. So maybe now we can have peace. Well, actually, probably not. Because the next king of the Lombards was even more warlike. And he conquered completely the city and territory surrounding Ravenna in 751. And this was really the last Byzantine-controlled area in northern Italy. And it marked the end of the Byzantine exarch on the northern part of the peninsula. So with the Byzantine influence almost non-existent and the Lombards technically at peace but not really trustworthy, the Pope needed to turn to some other power to help him defend the church and create stability and peace in Italy. And so he turned towards Germany. Pope St. Zachary was a big supporter of St. Boniface, who was continuing his mission to evangelize the Germans, but he was also in close contact with the rising power in France and Germany, which is the famous Carolingian family, and we'll be talking about them a lot. St. Zachary was put in contact with Pepin the Short, who was the successor to the famous Charles Martel, and he was technically the mayor of the palace of the French kings, and really, he was the true power of the Frankish kingdom. He was like a high administrative official who actually does all the work while the king kind of has the title. So like almost like the prime minister compared to the Queen of England. St. Zachary grew, grew close to Pepin and his brother Carloman, and he used his growing influence in what is today France and Germany and the zeal of St. Boniface to bring about a reform of the clergy throughout the region. Now, Carloman abdicated his uh, throne in 747 and became a monk. And he came to Rome and he was greeted by the Pope who installed him in a monastery in the city. And Pepin, meanwhile, famously wrote to Pope Zachary saying, it's unfair what's going on here in France. He says... You know, I basically do all the work. The king doesn't do anything. I basically govern the country. I basically run the army. I do all the things that a king does. The only thing is I don't get to wear a crown. That doesn't seem fair at all. Isn't the king the one who is governing his people? Can't I just be the king? Why do we have to have this other thing going on? And so Zachary said, that sounds fine. Being a king isn't about necessarily hereditary. It's about governing and caring for your people. And so Pepin had himself declared king, and he was anointed with chrism by St. Boniface, and this helped cement this growing relationship between Rome and the Franks, which is going to pay off down the road. As I said, we're going to talk about it a lot, and it's going to be really essential to the next period of papal history. Finally, in Rome itself, St. Zachary sought to really bring about renewal. The city had been decaying for years, buildings falling apart, all sorts of stuff going on, being attacked by Lombards. 
And so St. Zachary undertook a large building and repair project, which helped save many ancient churches and buildings. And he built the original church of Santa Maria Sopra Minerva, and he also restored the Lateran Palace. And likewise, he initiated this resettlement of the countryside project, which is really cool. The countryside around Rome, because of plagues, because of economic reasons, because of frequent invasions, had really become depopulated. A lot of people had moved within the walls, and, and there was no one out there working the fields. And so he decided to help resettle the, po- the countryside. And the church bought a bunch of land, and he would then build or renovate a basilica on that land. And then a town would grow up surrounding the basilica. And then from there, people would move out to those new towns, and kind of the countryside would be replenished. So one final story about St. Zachary. Apparently, a Venetian trader brought slaves to Rome to sell to Muslims in Africa. And when Pope Zachary found out, he immediately outlawed the trade in slaves and brought, bought the slaves from his own pocket, and he set them free immediately. St. Zachary died a few months after the fall of Ravenna on March 15, 752. He was buried in St. Peter's Basilica and was succeeded by Pope Stephen II, or Pope Stephen III, depending on how you count things. But that whole confusing mess of popes named Stephen will have to wait for next time. Thanks for listening to Habemus Papam. You can check out the rest of the Catholic Bites podcast at catholicbitespodcast.com, see our other projects, or you can find us on iTunes. Thank you and God bless you.